when you're stress healing, you understand, obviously you're able to deal with stress and build resilience. But what that breaks down into is that you understand how your mind works, how your brain works, how we've evolved, number one. Then you're able to relate to your thinking in a slightly different way. You're able to relate to your emotions in a different way. And when you're able to do those things, you are able to not waste energy pushing away thoughts and feelings you don't want. I was turning around to people, I was like, do you know this? Do you know you're not your thoughts? You don't have to respond to every thought in your head. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. When we think about how we deal with moments of stress or the unknown, you'll hear again and again the importance of building and nurturing a resilient mindset. In this episode, clinical psychologist Dr. Sam Akbar shares her research, tools and advice to help us all deal with stress better. While Sam's research is taken from her time working with refugees, often with post-traumatic stress disorder, the tools and learnings that she shares are incredibly relevant for how we all deal with stress, no matter what our personal background looks like. Now, I don't want to give too much away, as Sam explains what it means to have a stressilient mindset in this interview, and why she wrote a book of the same name. But understanding your levels of stress and how you can successfully react to stress is something we can absolutely all benefit from. And it's only from the place of understanding that we can equip ourselves to deal with stress and respond meaningfully. We also chat about the importance of investing in your values and why mindfulness plays such a big part in building resilience and how this all goes hand in hand with being prepared for stressful situations. There's a lot of Dr. Sam's work and especially her book that aligns with my own resilience research. So it was an absolute joy to sit down with her and chat through her perspective of stress and resilience. If this is a topic you're interested in, check out the Mindset Matters Hub where you can access my free course on building resilience. Now, I'm sure as you listen along to this episode, you'll come away with insights that align with your own experience of stress and hopefully some further tools to help you become stressilient. Hello, Dr. Sam Akbar. Thank you very much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great and I'm really pleased to be here to have a chat with you. I am super excited. So I have been reading your book, Stressillion. I'm going straight in there in this interview because it's totally, it's one of those books that I'm going to be honest, and I, 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 you probably think I say this to everyone, and I don't. It's a book that I wish I'd written. It's about my research topic, resilience, but it's brilliant. And what I love about it is it's evidence-based. It's short, and you mentioned that in the start as well. There's a reason why it's short, so we can put these things into practice. And also it's human. So it comes from, you know, your style of writing is very human. It's very relatable. And it's a book that is pretty much in my bag most of the time now. So thank you for joining me and agreeing to delve into some of that with me today. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That is actually the nicest compliment I've ever had about the book. I'm really, really flattered. And I really wanted it to be something that people would put in their handbags or put in their pockets and use when they were out and about. The beauty of your book is that there are loads of practical strategies in there which are really easy to implement. I know it's a, like I know from my experience that it's evidence-based because I recognize the things you're talking about but you even say that you know everything that you describe is based on research or evidence and it's so and the thing is there is something about it being practical and being short. It means we can apply this stuff in our busy day-to-day lives and I think that's something that our profession, we're both psychologists, in our profession is really important if we, if we want to help people to make changes. So pause here. I'm going to pause there for a second and kind of go right back to the start. What does stressilient mean? Okay, so I guess it's a bit of a silly word that I made up, staring out of a window, waiting for a patient to come along. And I guess to me, what it means is 
when you're stress resilient, you understand, obviously you're able to deal with stress and build resilience. But what that breaks down into is that you understand how your mind works, how your brain works, how we've evolved to react to stress or fear or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Number one, then you're able to relate to your thinking in a slightly different way. You're able to relate to your emotions in a different way. And when you're able to do those things, you are able to not waste energy pushing away thoughts and feelings you don't want. I think that's kind of the key first thing, right? We spend a lot of our precious energy pushing away the stuff we don't want. Largely, that's what we're taught to do. And also, we don't want to have horrible thoughts. We don't want to have feelings like sadness or grief or fear. So we try and get rid of them all of the time. When you're stress resilient, you know other ways to cope with that. And when you can do that, then you can do the thing that's most important, which is living a life according to your values. Yeah, That's yeah. the thing it really frees you up to do. And you're able to take perspective on your internal world. Um, you're able to bring mindfulness to your internal world. And I guess the simplest thing I, could, I feel like I could explain it as is you're able to build a space between your thoughts and feelings and you. And when you've got a little space between that, you can think about how you do other things. You're not caught up in them. And there's a lot of freedom in there to take different actions, to live a different kind of life when you're a step removed. That is such brilliant advice. And I I often have to remind myself of that, that I'm not my thoughts or I'm not my feelings. I have thoughts about an event um, or I might experience emotions or a specific feeling or it might create a mood for me. Um, but that doesn't mean that's who you are. It can be part of who you are potentially. But, you know, saying like you're in a situation where you feel really angry at something, it doesn't make you an mm. angry person. It makes you a person that might be experiencing that at the moment. And I think even just that Absolutely. small shift in how you look at that like you said provides you with the space and the freedom to choose what you do with that and I and I I feel like it kind of gives you a little bit of control or power over how you navigate some of that as well which I think is useful for all of us absolutely I think that's a really good point about we can have these very rigid descriptions of ourselves can't we I am anxious I'm depressed I'm always scared. I'm always worried. Um, it's like that's your personality. And it isn't. It's part of what you feel at that moment in time. I am someone experiencing strong feelings of sadness at this moment. And I think you're right. When you, when you can frame it in that way, you can free yourself up from those quite limiting labels. And also sometimes it reduces the judgment about yourself as well or even the judgment of others, it's, it's understanding. And also the fact that we can experience multiple emotions at the same time. There could be something going on in my life that makes me really happy. And at the same time, I'm experiencing yeah. something, another event in my life that's making me sad. And I can have both those things going on at the same time. And I can hold them both at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other either. It's such a good point. Who knew that you could have two emotions? Who knew? That's like brand new information for me. And it's true. It was a bit brand new information for me. I remember, I remember this really clearly on the day I got married. Um, I was talking to my cousin on the phone. It was very early in the morning. I was like, why am I crying? I'm supposed to be happy. And I just felt really emotional. And I felt really, Mm. I felt both really excited and happy, but also quite sad. And of course, I was sad because my mother had died many years ago, but of course, she wouldn't be there on my wedding day. And so there are lots of different conflicting things that go on. And we normally can understand that on a occasion of a birth or a wedding. But actually, we can have kind of difficult conflicting concurrent emotions all week long about Mm. things and I think when we can say oh it's normal just for example in a marriage to sometimes find your partner really really annoying but still love them yeah I hear friends go through this 
you know, you can have very conflicting things going on. And I think one of the really important things is to think also not just about my internal world, what I'm feeling, I can have these different emotions, but what's the context of what I'm going through at the moment? Right? Maybe there are lots of things yeah. going on for me. And sometimes we forget that context is really important. Certainly in understanding stress, you could be going through things at work and at home and with your health. Yeah. And you can have multiple things. And I, and I often, I found this in my resilience research that when I was going through lots of interviews with people talking about kind of what resilience means for them and, and how it actually works, that for some people, they would struggle, they'd, they'd feel low in, on the resilience scale or their reserves would feel low if they were going through some kind of big challenge. And for mm. others, they might be going through loads of multiple challenges or actually they could have a reaction to something going on in their lives that actually didn't seem that major. If you take a step back and, and, you know, if it's happened in the past, they look back on it, but it's because there were so many other things going on Absolutely. as well. And I think we don't always have the time um, or the space to reflect on these things or to really figure out kind of what resilience means for us, but also what stress means for us as well. And, and you know, think about the, the concept of stress that, you know, there's research out there that says stress can actually be quite positive for us at different points in time. Mm -hmm. It can get us moving. It can keep us motivated. It can be, as long as it's not chronic, it's, I think it's the chronic stress. Chronic nature, yeah. Ongoing, doesn't change. There's no kind of respite from that. That's a whole different story. But what I think is these concepts are sometimes complicated. Sometimes for a lot of us, they're things that we haven't delved into about ourselves. And actually... What I really appreciate about your work is you make it really simple and you bring a bit of humour to it as well. And I love this idea of being a psychologist, but living through this stuff as well, being exactly the same as everyone else, which is how I feel. I'm a psychologist, but I still, you know, I still have to think about my resilience and I still don't always navigate stress in the best way. And that's what I'm really appreciating. Oh, well, I'm so glad there's someone on earth who finds me a bit funny other than myself. (laughs) I said to my daughter... I've got one. I said to my daughter the other day, do you know, I think I'm a comedy genius. And she just said, you're so not. Um, (laughs) So that was a little harsh. Uh, But I really, you know, I can say this about the kind of work I do, which is I take the work really seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. (laughs) That's largely because no one else does either. So I want, and, and you know, that's, you know me, that's my style a bit to try and find some lightness as well because otherwise I think you just you turn people away from your message and um and so I really wanted to kind of write in the way I guess that I speak to make it accessible and for some people like that some people hate that that's fine but I think that you know that idea that yeah you can be going through so many different things and it's that chronic problem with stress that's the problem I wouldn't say all stress is bad plus you know from your research on resilience you can't you can't take away stress from people Mm -hmm. because what they're going to do just sit in a box um not experiencing life part of life is experiencing those ups and downs but it's more how Mm -hmm. you kind of navigate them and that is that is true so many people I've worked with have said to me um I want to build resilience but I don't want to have to go through those challenges to be able to do it. And, the th- and, and, and when I'm teaching people to be resilient, the one thing I'd always say is I can't make you more resilient. All I can do is teach you about what the concept means. I can give you strategies and tools that you can put into place to build your resilience. But ultimately, you need to do that in the real world with real challenges in real time. I, ca- I can't make pretend challenges for you. We can't do a role play make you more resilient you have to go and put this stuff into practice you have to reflect you have to learn what works for you what doesn't work for you and adjust things where you need to it's like you know resilience isn't an end goal it's something that you have to work on all the time and you and keep that, building those actually, tools in your toolbox that's a really good point it's a process not somewhere yeah. that you reach i think um one of the things that i think is important is when we're talking about mental health or resilience or stress as professionals that you know we as you say we experience all those things as well although Mm. I used to think when I was doing my clinical training that 
psychologists never had any problems. I thought they, I don't know why I thought this is quite bananas now I think about it. I thought they never went through kind of normal creepy things. I thought that once you sort of, <laughs> so I'm laughing, it's so ridiculous. Once you'd kind of learnt the tools or the techniques or you understood yourself, you kind of just sailed through life on calm waters. And having become a psychologist myself, I can say this is not true. We all go through our things. And there's a lovely kind of metaphor, which is in therapy, you're climbing up your mountain and I'm climbing up my mountain. I can shout out to you and say, hey, there's a crevasse there or you need to take this other path. I think that's a bit tricky or there's a really good path to where you need to go here. But I'm still climbing up my own mountain. Doesn't mean my own mountain doesn't have crevasses and pitfalls and whatever else is going. And so I really wanted the book to sort of be open in that way to talking sort of honestly that even if you don't have a, in inverted commas, you know, diagnosable mental health problem, we're all still struggling with things. Life Mm. is hard. Things are difficult. Things are really difficult for a lot of people right now especially the cost of living crisis, is really, really hard. And I think just being able to say, in a way, is it the normal state of affairs that things are often quite difficult? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But it feels like we are working and looking after, some of us looking after young families, plus looking after maybe older parents or siblings who have needs plus trying to work, plus trying to manage money, like things are difficult. And that's not to say they haven't always been difficult, but maybe we talk about them a bit more than we used to. And maybe we also live in slightly, can live in more difficult contexts in that we might not have the support network around us. A lot of people move away from their homes for jobs and don't have their neighbours or their friends that they've grown up with or their families. So we're operating as these little units without that kind of collective help around us. I think that also causes quite a lot of stress for people because there isn't much resource around you to help you when it all starts getting a bit much. I agree. And I think what's interesting there, one of the things you were talking about is this idea that we're all going through challenges. And I think that's particularly apt from your perspective, given the kind of work you do. Mm. So could you give me kind of a bit of a brief description about the clinical work as well so I work with refugees with post-traumatic stress disorder who have survived torture or extreme sexual violence or war largely and that's a real conversation killer (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm like where do I take that it's a part of the context of the discussion and the reason I think that's such an important point when we're talking about your Mm. work we're talking about the book is because sometimes we think that some of the strategies that we might talk about in terms of building resilience or dealing with stress are easier or easy-ish if you're living quite a privileged life. If and I know there's lots of things going on in the world. There's you know, you know, let's not reel off a great list of challenging or terrible things mm. that are going on mm. in the world. But sometimes we can look at these things from a fairly privileged viewpoint of you know you you have enough food or you you have stable-ish relationships or you know life is kind of plodding along and there's nothing wrong with that because I think even in those moments we need to be thinking about our own mental health we do need to be thinking about how we manage with stress how we overcome in challenges how do we navigate uncertainty but it's also important to I think recognize that a lot of the things you talk about actually mm. apply across the board it, these are the things that help people who have been in absolutely dire situations as well and I like the idea that you are talking about this subject and and providing tools and strategies, and we'll we'll jump into some of those as well, to help people that can apply across the board, can apply to people who, and help people who've been in really traumatic places, can also help us day to day as well. I think that's a really positive thing. Well, that's really nice to hear. Um, You'll know from your own kind of uh, clinical training that the work I would do with post-traumatic stress disorders, a very specific kind of uh, cognitive behavioural work. or uh, So I, wouldn't, I don't talk about that so much in the book because that's treating the PTSD specifically. But absolutely, the re- it's a lot around helping people reconnect with their lives. 
So for example, one of the things that we do do a lot is thinking about value. For someone who refugees often never get asked what's important to them, what was important to you in your life before, what's important to you now, how can we support you to be in touch with that, even though it's going to have to look different. So many of the kind of tools and techniques are things I would use around the periphery of my kind of major therapy. I find them so helpful. And that's why I wanted to write the book, because I was learning all these amazing things. I thought these are all things we could be doing in our everyday life to build mm-hmm. resilience. They're things that they are small, easy practices that you can build in to help yourself become more aware of your internal world, how you respond to it and the kind of effect it has. So I really just wanted to share those things because I found them very helpful for myself, actually, Mm -hmm. for doing this kind of quite very difficult work. I find it really, really helpful to use the tools that I've I've written about in the book. I mean, I would say that, obviously. (laughs) Well, I can confirm that. You know, this is I'm another psychologist. I work in this field day in, day out. This is my career. You know, I have been heading the concept of resilience for the last decade, probably, and the things that you talk about in your book, the strategies that you provide, the tools you provide are helpful for me. And I know the subject inside out. So I can confirm. I'm not surprised they were helpful for you. I can <laughs> confirm that as far as resilience and navigating stress goes, the information you're providing is um, second to none. Like it's, it's, and I, we were talking a little bit earlier before we were recording about being potentially a little bit cynical. And I don't know if that's a psychologist in me in general so whenever I come across something new a new book or a new concept or a new way of looking at this I'm always a bit like well is this going to be any good and how is this different to what we've heard before so I can safely say I picked up your book Stress in a very cynical mindset and I was a bit like oh god you know well how is it like this I'm I don't really think this is going to be amazing but I'm going to give it a go I'm going to be open-minded I'm going to be curious I'm going to give it a go Honestly, within, you know, a few pages, I was like, brilliant. This is exactly, exactly what we need. And I know I said it at the start, but I truly mean it's the book I wish I'd written about resilience. So I, I'm not surprised. I'll tell you how much that means to me. <laughs> I know, and I will stop saying it now, because I'm sure at some point you'll be like, no, 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 stop no don't stop <laughs> saying really it. Embarrassing. No, no, don't <laughs> stop saying it. In fact, could you just <laughs> come round to my house and perhaps just sit in a corner and say it quite a lot? I think that'd be absolutely fine and not weird at all. I'll record it and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> you joke, um, talk to me about... but yes, please. <laughs> You're like, yes, please. That would actually yes, really please. help me. But talk to me about acceptance and commitment therapy as well because it's something okay. that I use in my work and it shows up a lot in your book so talk to me about yeah that. so uh, well as you know acceptance com- and commitment therapy is a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy interventional way of understanding our inner worlds and I really I remember the first time I really kind of came across its sort of core ideas and The idea behind acceptance commitment therapy is that you're building psychological flexibility, right? Which I love. I love the idea of it. It's like doing some really good thinking while you're doing yoga or something. I really like the idea of psychological flexibility. I can be flexible in no other physical way, so that's why I like it. Um, You can be psychologically flexible flexible while sitting on the sofa eating biscuits, and I'm all for that. Um, (laughs) Me too. So... So it's this idea that you, how you, you change your relationship with your thoughts rather than just changing the content of them. So rather than sort of arguing, if you have a thought that says, oh, I'm really crap at podcasts, for example, or I'm crap at public speaking, or I'm really terrible at this. Usually what we do is we get into a debate and we say, no, I went on Gemma's podcast and I think that went quite well. or I did this presentation at work. I think it did, went quite well. We can kind of get into a debate about these things, or we can get into a debate about judgments we have about ourselves. And sometimes that works, but actually your mind is built to spew out a lot of these judgments, and they're often negative. Right? And so what is more helpful is to learn to diffuse from that kind of thinking just to see it as stuff that comes out of your brain. Anyway, I remember I was, many years ago, I was on a plane 
to I was going to see my best friend who had moved to Trinidad, which was kind of handy. And I was uh, flying over there. I was pregnant, I think. And I was reading. I'd taken a, a workbook with me. Do you ever do that when you go on holiday? Take a workbook? Of course I do. Yes. Unknown <laughs> stupid reason that you then don't actually read, just feel really guilty about. Yep. I once went on a holiday with my mother and uh, I had taken, and I was about 21, and I'd taken a book called Soviet Women Workers, 1939 to 1952. And she said to me, who takes that on holiday? A book about Soviet women workers. Anyway, I was doing a similar thing, only I'd moved on to psychology books by now. And I'd taken a book on acceptance of therapy. And there was a line in it talking about this idea of you not, you know, you kind of relating differently to your thoughts. I remember it said, you know, you don't have to listen to every thought your brain has. You are not your thoughts. And I almost jumped up from my seat like a sort of funny kind of animal lemming or something like this. I was turning around to people. I was like, do you know this? Do you know you're not your thoughts? You don't have to respond to every thought in your head. It was brand new information. And I thought, wow, how freeing is that? That every time a thought pops, pops into my head that I am X, Y, and Z, I can just say, thanks, mind. Yeah, I, I know you're trying to help me out with something here, but it's okay. I got it. Or I could just say, I'm just having the thought that I'm crap at this or I'm too fat or too thin or too tall or whatever it is or I'm a failure or I'm worthless I don't have to engage in a debate with it that felt so revolutionary to me and then I started doing more acceptance and commitment training and bringing it into my work and I loved it because of its emphasis on what's important to you in your values and bringing that into my refugee work and actually one of the WHO programs for refugees, which I think is called Self Help Plus, is all ACT based. And so I was just, I really just came to celebrate this way of working. And I thought, this is a really, this is not something many people know about. We in the psychology world do, we, you know, we ACT is a very popular thing. I thought, I really found myself sharing a lot of these techniques with friends or family and they found it really helpful I thought they're so great I just want to put them into a book or share them in an easy way that people can use them because I was having that experience of them really helping me not actually just navigating stress but also kind of going beyond that and thriving in as much That's as I ever feel like I'm thriving <laughs> but I felt like I, 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 it was answering so many questions for me. And I just wanted to share that because I thought it was so helpful. And that's how I kind of came to it and why it goes through the book in, in, in the way it does. And I, it was, I came to act, I, I want to say fairly late in my psychology career, but I don't think it was late. I just think it wasn't around when I first started training mm. as a psychologist all those years ago. And, and it's the third wave of kind of, therapy isn't it it's, it's our newest wave but when I was at Wigeny so I, I obviously I, I'm not a therapist but I am a coaching psychologist as as, as well as like a consultation mm. psychologist like psychologist in general and a lot of my coaching work originally when I first did my training was based around cognitive behavioral coaching because that's that was mm. evidence-based um it was probably one of the most evidence-based types of coaching back in those days where I was training and it can be really useful, exactly as you say. So cognitive behavioural coaching is helping people to potentially change the way they think about things or, or change the way they look at situations to achieve a different result. I, we're assuming a better result here because um, that's, that's, that's what some people are trying to work towards. Um, and it can be really useful. And there are times where that is really useful. So when I first came across ACT, I was already a cognitive behavioural coach. So I was, again, my healthy dose or maybe unhealthy dose of cynicism kicked in. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't quite like the sound of this, like acceptance and commitment. I don't really know. First of all, I don't really know what that means. But of course, you don't know what it means when you, it's a new concept. You haven't learned about it. Um, 
But it didn't take very long for me to realise that exactly the same as you, no one, even as a psychologist, no one had told me I didn't have to listen to all of my thoughts. No one had told me that my thoughts are not me as a person. Um, no one had said things like, you can learn to accept what you're experiencing. It can be uncomfortable. It can be unpleasant. It can be challenging. But you can learn to accept that whilst also, that, that's the kind of the acceptance bit, being committed to finding a way to moving forward in life towards thriving. You can do both of those things at the same time. Now, of course, you can also change your perspective. You can change yeah. the way you look at the world. You can change. That's also helpful as well. And I think that's, you know, partly, I guess, part of the work we do with people would be figuring out how to navigate individual challenges or, or what's going on Absolutely. with someone's life. Absolutely. It's not either or, it's both and, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes you mm-hmm. might reframe 100%. your thinking and mm-hmm. sometimes you might diffuse from your thinking. I think the point is you're helping people have skills and working mm. out when they might find it helpful to do one thing or another. And I always describe it as having tools in your toolbox. So you've got a great big toolbox and the more tools you can put in there, you might have, you know, you might frequently use the spanner for example because that's something yeah. you frequently need in your house but you know the hammer's in there if you need it if, if there's a particular thing that you need to do with a hammer you wouldn't try and use a spanner to put a nail in the wall you'd be like ah I know what I'm gonna do yeah I'm gonna go and try that new hammer that I've that I, I know how that works and I think that's what's really important like giving people kind of tools and skills to help them thrive in life and I love this idea as well what I find different about this whole third wave is the focus being not on surviving something even though we need that at times of course we do like and part of resilience is survival at times but act and acceptance and commitment therapy and that third wave is looking at okay how do I not just survive how do I actually thrive as well and it comes back to that that what you were talking about in terms of knowing your values understanding yourself understanding what's important Mm. um finding meaning in life it could be tiny parts tiny moments of meaning um, that might be important to you throughout the day. And also understanding a little bit more about how the mind works as well and, and how that applies to us and, and using that information in a way that's really helpful rather than... And, and I always... I can't get my head around the fact we don't learn about how our brains work at school. I mean, maybe that maybe we do now, maybe that's part of the curriculum, but I certainly didn't. The first time I came across psychology, I didn't even do an A-level psychology. The first time I came across real psychology what it means was at university at the age of 18 which blows I my didn't, mind okay so I can up that on you I didn't even first do a psychology degree I did a classics degree where I thought a lot about Latin and ancient Greek and then I worked in TV in sort of current affairs documentary and then I did a psychology degree when I was in my 30s I suppose so I had no clue, which meant I was flying blind through my 20s for a long time. Now, if I could go back, I would say to myself, it is quite normal not to be happy all the time. For some reason, yes. I feel like I grew up thinking, that. not that I was necessarily happy, but the normal state of a human being is to feel happy, and it isn't. But do you know, I think... It's an honest conversation. And I think that is important for people to know because I've certainly been in that position. And I think if you think about today and the rise of social media and how things look, it's very easy to assume that the normal state we should all be in is is happy at all times. Like that's what we should be striving for. That's how we should be living. We should, but that's one emotion out of a whole bank of emotions. And actually, if you think about it, we can't be happy all the time because... We, and I know this sounds, um, sounds a little bit cheesy when I say this, but I, I truly believe this. You wouldn't know what happiness was if you'd never experienced sadness. It's the yeah. contrast between the two that tells you, oh, I feel really happy. I feel joy or I feel excitement rather than anxiety or sadness. Or you, it's, it's that healthy contrast that, that helps, helps us to identify how we're experiencing the world and, and, um and piece together and make sense of how we're experiencing the world and our emotions are there I kind of I say to people now about emotions I talk a lot about emotions in my work as you'd imagine Mm. um they're data points they're telling you something 
So if you feel anxious in a particular situation or in general, that's telling you something about what's going on around you. And you might need to try and make some changes or if there's a particular thing that makes you feel extremely joyful um, or grateful or um, excited, that's telling you something. It's telling you that that situation is good for you. Maybe it aligns with your values. Maybe it brings meaning for you. Um, Absolutely. Our emotions are data points. I was just doing a sort of masterclass yesterday and I was saying one thing that I, somebody asked me a really good question, which is what have you done that you think really helps you? And one thing I do is, I live and die by the notes app on my phone. Um, it's either a combination of very deep thoughts or what I need from Tesco that day. So if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't know what you'd make of it. Um, but I often write down things like, today I, I went out in the evening, I had a really interesting conversation with this friend I hadn't seen in a long time and I felt really alive and I really enjoyed it. And this is telling me something that's important to me. I write that down because I feel like, I know it sounds so stupid, right? I mean, everyone's like, I'm sure there's collective eye rolling going on people listening to this podcast when they hear me say it, but I can't remember stuff. You kind of take it for granted, but actually I think one of the things I've learned is to stop and think, this situation made me feel really happy. I was really happy in this context. Not always joyful, right? There's a difference between happy and joyful. I think there can be, and obviously I feel like Aristotle has much to teach us on this, um, but there's happiness and there's contentment, right? And, or jo sorry, joy rather than contentment. There are times I think you need to know, when do I feel joyful? When do I feel content? When do I feel like, Maybe I really lived by my values today. And maybe I felt really sad and anxious because maybe I went to visit a relative who's really not doing well and is suffering with an illness. Or maybe I called up someone I know who's gone through a bereavement lately and I spent some time talking to them. Well, it didn't make me feel joyful, but maybe it was really in line with something that's important about being a good friend or a good family member, whatever it is to you. I also write those things down when I do something that I, I knew would be uncomfortable, but I had to make room for it because I wanted to act according to my values. Now, of course, I don't always do that. And of course, I'm not going around acting according to my values perfectly all the time. I'm quite often shouting and being bad tempered and occasionally slamming doors and having like passive aggressive sulks at people because I'm a human being. And that's what, you know, we all do. But I think there's something about writing down, noting those moments where you felt alive and vital and life felt rich and meaningful in the broadest sense of all those words, not just joyful, where you felt in contact and authentic with yourself. I think we should pay attention to those because I think that, as you say, they are data points for guiding us. And they're very important for resilience. Because actually they're telling you, I went through that. I made room for this difficult thing. I did it. And you went, you're under stress. You will not remember your resources. You will not remember mm -hmm. that you can cope. You can ask for help. There are things you can do. Yeah. And your brain under stress won't think you're such an ace person. You managed your mother's terrible illness really well. And now you're really struggling at work you'll find your way through sometimes you need a prompt to remind you of what you did because you're you're under yeah. stress you can't access that information so I really think that's a, a useful thing to do and it's sort of it's just a step on from your data points it's noting it down I think that's brilliant advice and I think you know people do that in all kinds of ways you could journal you could do it on the take a picture on the move, put in your notes take a picture yeah such a great and it's reminding you of what's important to you it's reminding it's coming back to those values and it's coming back to meaning and again it's it's it is those data points around what matters to you in life and and I also feel like it, it gives you it helps you to feel connected to life as well like I often find when I'm feeling quite overwhelmed which happens fairly often mm. in my world um 
well, life's a bit crazy and I'm juggling lots of things and I start to feel a bit out of control. One of the things I really, there's a few things I do, but one of the things I really do to ground me is I have this idea of connection and it can happen in lots of different ways. So it could be connecting with a person. It might mean mm. I need to have a chat with a friend um, or my husband, or it might mean I need to spend some time with the kids, just, you know, messing around or blocking everything else out. But I also have this thing where sometimes I just have to connect day-to-day life. Like I have to do normal things like clean the kitchen or go and collect the dry cleaning. Or it's it's almost like I have to connect to something. And it'll be different every time. It'll depend what the context is. and It'll depend what's going on. Sometimes it's people. Um, sometimes it's like just doing real things. Or sometimes it's nature. Like I have to, Yeah, it's really helpful to like connect to trees and something outside of myself. And but it's, and it, ha- it happens in lots of different ways. The only way I can describe it is this idea of connection, but it, it manifests in lots of different ways at different times. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, it's all different, the different for everyone, right? Everyone has a different mm. way. Your resilience is particular to you. And I suppose mm. I'd say to people listening, don't think because of what your partner does or your friend does, that that is your way of dealing with it. There are different things that you can do that are particular to you. I think they would broadly fit within what I've talked about with the book, but you find your own idiosyncratic way of listening to what you need when you're under stress. And I think that's such a great point. And it's something, again, it comes back to that. Think about what we can see other people doing and comparison. And sometimes it's very easy to think, I'm not doing this right. Like I'm not doing this resilience thing right. Or I'm not managing stress in the same way as everyone else is. But you're right. Everyone's doing, should all be doing this stuff in our own ways. Talking of which, are there any particular strategies that stand out for you when it comes to dealing with stress or building resilience? I think the first thing that I is is actually noticing what you do, what you feel like under stress. So mm. for me, I I might tense up much more, I might become much more impatient. I also then try and do too many things, I think. I I sort of I'm racing from one thing to another. So I think what the first thing I'd say is it's really helpful to know what it is you your stress for you looks like, yeah, and how you behave like that. For me, actually, the first thing that I find very helpful is, and I, you know, there's a chapter in the book about how you can cultivate this. Is I try to just become a bit mindful, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I need to because without I, otherwise I'm not even aware of what's happening. I always joke, I really wanted to write a book about sort of stress and resilience that didn't have mindfulness in it because it's everywhere. And I couldn't because it's it's so compelling. I really I felt like I was just like, oh. And also, I'm surprised we've got this far into the conversation before we've mentioned mindfulness. I think we've done well on that front. But also, not even really compelling. The research is brilliant. It's really compelling. And I think the thing is, what happens is people think that mindfulness is is meditation in your back garden with your legs crossed at five in the morning. And for some people, that, that's what it is. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, mm-hmm. would I get up at five in the morning for anything or anyone? Unlikely. Unlikely. But I think you can bring mindfulness into your life in small ways. And what I love about it is actually it's a really nice way not only to notice when you're stressed, but also to savour really lovely moments. Yeah, I think there's something that in in a lot of these techniques, they're also about savouring. I often feel quite freaked out when things are going really well. I think, how how do I respond to this? What do I do? (laughs) Things are nice. You know, and our, our normal resting state is to look for a problem. Right? That's what our brains will do. So I think, gosh, mindfulness is a really nice way of doing that. So particular things, I think I would just try and centre myself a little bit. And I'm really, you know, I'm not a mindfulness bod, you know. I'm a bit sort of, yeah, I'm not someone who sits still very long or can't or, or is quiet for very long. I think that's the key thing, can't shut up. Um, 
But I, I think I would just do, even for 30 seconds, some really simple breathing and noticing. And I might do an exercise I really like, actually, um, is uh, one by a brilliant psychologist called Russ Harris, which is called Dropping an Anchor, which is a great one for um, when you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed. And that's sort of just, you know, really pushing your feet into the floor, um, pushing your hands together, noticing, um, naming and noticing three things around you um, that you can see, two things that you can hear, taking some deep breaths, just really centering yourself, noticing that there are these difficult emotions, but there's a body around these emotions that can make room for everything. I think that's, I might do something like that first. And then I'd sort of think, well, where is my, what's my thinking doing? And is it serving me? Right? Should I be listening to my brain, what my brain is, is saying now? Or should I be taking a step back from that? And then I can think, once I've sort of kind of brought it all down a notch, brought the temperature down a notch by doing a kind of basic mindfulness thing, then I can think, okay, what is useful mindful action now that helps me? Yeah, I've, got, I've just got a bit of space and time to think, what do I need now? And maybe that's, I need to have a really difficult conversation with somebody about something that has gone on. Yeah. Or maybe I need to go for a really long walk. Or maybe I need to ask someone for help. Or maybe I need to say um, to a colleague, I need half an hour and then can we, I'll have our meeting later. You know, whatever it might be. And it's always very difficult in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But even giving yourself five or ten minutes, hiding in the loo, I was also thought Stressilium was a very good book to to take with you to hide in the loo and think, what shall I do? Yeah, very true. You've always got time. You've always got time to wee, haven't you? Um, <laughs> you could just have a minute just to bring it all down a notch, and then you can think about what I need. You won't necessarily always solve your stress problem in that moment, but it's just going to allow you to recenter and take some meaningful action. What do you do when you're stressed? Do you do a mindfulness when you're stressed? I agree. It allows you to reset. What do I do when I'm stressed? I mean, I I should have lots of examples for this. I feel like I'm in that state fairly frequently at the moment, which comes back to that. (laughs) As psychologists, we still live this stuff as well. Um, Mindfulness is really important for me. I'm not so great at labeling it as mindfulness if you know what I mean mm. like I'm, I'm I need to get better at, at making it a regular practice and that's something that I'm working on um because I think there are benefits for that as well but I'm very I kind of will intuitively I guess because I've learned over the years know what I need to do so it could be going for a walk I spend a lot of time working through my thoughts or challenges out with the dog in mm. around some trees somewhere I, I find that really really helpful me sometimes if I'm feeling particularly overwhelmed I know you know you watch stress you know stress feels different in everyone's bodies but I get quite a tight chest my sleep is often quite um impacted my mood definitely I get snappier um with people I care about I will sometimes because I obviously I fairly listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm mm. out and about but sometimes I just won't have any noise at all I just want to hear what's going on around me and sometimes I need to make a bit of room in my head to actually consciously hear the thoughts because so often they're kind of subconsciously whirring away in the background clearly having an impact on me but I'm not properly acknowledging it and I I I start to know that I need to acknowledge that if if things start if like, if like life starts to feel noisy like I need to be somewhere quiet or I need to so I, I'll make that happen so it could be a lot of time it's kind of being out it's moving my body gently walk I love going I much I love going to the gym when I'm feeling quite stressed the gym actually isn't that helpful for me often because it's you know, if you've got a lot of cortisol going around your bloodstream, and generally don't need to be adding to that. So I try and find ways to like calm my body. Um, and for me, that's quite gentle things like walking, like mm-hmm. being with the dog. Honestly, the dog, I feel like he's turned into my emotional support dog. That was never the point <laughs> when we bought him. But he, I find that really therapeutic. And also I do to a certain extent, like being around my children and people I care about. The only problem with that is my children fairly often need something from me and they're little so sometimes that's like an extra thing. Mm. I'm like, oh God, I'm trying to like manage that as well. Whereas with the dog, 
you know he's he's happy yeah. he gets fed and gets a stroke um so that's quite good for me as well um I think you're right but about I think that, was... that, that gentle exercise thing because when you're under stress yeah. you're in a flight or fight response you're redu- yeah. releasing hormones and they need somewhere to go right mm-hmm. if you go if they if they haven't got anywhere to go you can't work them off in some way or reduce yeah. them in some way or let them run their course then you sort of end up this is where you end up under chronic stress that's why I also am a massive walker and I find I process a lot of my emotions when I'm walking and I think that's yeah. also that's something about your body being active there being something for your eyes to look at your ears to listen to mm-hmm. and it allows you to process things in a less threatening way and I think it's you know we don't always have the the opportunity to do that we could be in the middle of a really challenging situation you know think about some of the situations people are dealing with around the world you don't always have the option to switch off and go for a walk I totally yeah. appreciate that of course, of course, you know, and I also feel quite privileged when I can do that. But equally, I don't think you can let that hold you back. I think you need to find things that help you because it could be mindfulness in the moment, in the place that you are. You don't have to go somewhere else. But I think it's finding things that can help you in the context you're in. And it may not be the perfect solution right now, but it's a thing that's breathing, for example, like box breathing, mm. I do fairly regularly, and the physiological yeah. size, so where you breathe in, fill your lungs feel them a bit more and then breathe out that really helps me really really helps I remember when my daughter was sort of three or four I used to teach her this sort of deeper breathing so it became Mm -hmm. a real habit and it was think it's quite interesting thing what do psychologists teach their children what is one thing that they would teach their children and I think mine would be breathing and self-compassion I think and I'm definitely teaching my children that for sure on that note, so talking about, this is something mm. that I found really useful in your book as well, thinking about how you deal with a threatening situation. So imagine you're up against some kind of obstacle that feels like a threat. It could be something like um, going for a job interview, or standing on stage or doing a presentation or having a difficult conversation with someone um, or, or even something like there's, there could be a threat of like financial loss or mm. something like something that feels really heavy, really threatening. It was really interesting um, in your book, you talked about there's kind of two routes you can go from there. So you can go into drive mode or you can go into soothing mode. I fairly often go into drive mode where I try and get myself out of the situation to focus on the outcome. What can I achieve? I want to get better at going down the soothing route. So could you explain that whole context in a much better way than I have, basically, and how it means? I'm really glad you asked about it because actually it's funny that. Um, I thought it was something, it's such an important part of resilience. If you look at the research, self-compassion, it really, really helps. It's like a superpower. It's a psychological superpower that you can learn as well. Um, it's not something you're just born with. So the brain has three systems. One is the fight or flight system. We know about that. And one is the drive system. So this is the sort of system that makes us you know, kind of is our reward system. It makes us find jobs and get houses and have partners and have sex and get food. And it's a really important part of our survival and evolution. But there's another part that no one ever really pays much attention to, which is the soothing system. And it's that part that we are evolved to need soothing because we're mammals. And it releases oxytocin. It makes you, it's, it's a feeling of safeness. And it's not something that we really prioritize. And we certainly don't teach anyone about it. And what we tend to do under threat is go to the dopamine system, which actually now sounds like a system in Star Wars, like the Dagobah system, the dopamine system. Uh, we go to the dopamine to solve our problems now that's fine right but it's a problem if that's the only thing that you can go to yeah sometimes feeling under threat or feeling unsafe emotionally unsafe isn't always solved by buying something or drinking something or eating something or achieving something sometimes it's it's the soothing that helps you sit with it. 
And the truth is we want all of those things to be in balance. Yeah? So I'm not saying don't comfort shop. Who am I to say that? Or eat biscuits, right? But there has to be, it's really helpful to find something else. And there's some really nice exercises that you can do to help develop the sense of self-compassion. There's some learning, I think, that you need to do there as well about what it is to be self-compassionate. But even writing compassionate letters to yourself or imagining a really compassionate friend showing you that compassion and turning it to yourself. These things are so helpful under stress because if you've only got one response under stress, it's not always going to work. You need, like you talked about the toolbox, you need different things and you need to cultivate self-compassion and it can be cultivated. Yes, largely we learn it from our caregivers, but we can all do work to cultivate that. And it makes you more resilient, you cope better with stress, you cope better with failure. The research is all there. I quoted it yeah. like a little nerd. But it was my thesis. And I sort of like, gosh, this is really, this is something. And it really is such a useful thing to be able to do. But people don't like the word self-compassion. What they think it is, is self-pity or indulgence or not getting the job done. And really, really it isn't. People who are self-compassionate are often much more effective than those who aren't over the long run yeah and so it's just it's about trying I mean you know it's about a sort of finding a way sometimes to describe it to people that doesn't always use the word self-compassion because it turns them off if I said I've got this amazing tool for you really helps you feel comfortable in yourself learn to be different in yourself improve your performance take you to a peak performance level many other things Lots of people go, yeah, 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 yeah. What is it? And if I say, oh, it's called self-compassion, they'll sort of go, no. And that tells you something. It sounds wishy-washy, doesn't it? But it so isn't wishy-washy. And it's such a useful, useful thing to cultivate. And I love it because of the science behind it, the brain science Mm -hmm. behind it is really, really compelling. This idea that, you know, we've got these three systems, they need to work in together. And how can we cultivate that side of ourselves a little bit more? And maybe just, uh, you know, I never say to anyone in therapy, you've got to do anything, but just are you willing to be open to an alternative way of doing or looking at something? And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. That's fine. You don't have to buy into everything. You can think about the things that work for you, feel comfortable for you pick and choose it's a it's a pick and mix I like it psychology pick and mix I love this idea of self-compassion and it's definitely something I need to get better at but it is something I do as well so I, I do I do, okay. do it sometimes but I definitely need to get better and I think sometimes well I always advise other people but I try and advise myself and I by saying would you talk to your best friend like that you know some of the things I say to myself in my head yeah are horrendous I would never say that to another human and yet we say, you know, it's the voice we hear most is the voice in our heads. And yet we, we think it's okay to say it to ourselves. Oh, amazing. Thank you so, so much for sharing today all your knowledge and ideas and thoughts and strategies to help people as well. So if people want to know a little bit more about being stress-illiant, about your work, where can they find you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. So yeah, come on over and say hello. The Mindset Matters podcast is not for profit, supporting Bloom Mental Health UK's resilience programme for young people. Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom programme and their impact at mentalhealth-uk.org. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Sam Akbar. I certainly came away with more insights about how I respond to stress and how to respond with meaningful action. One of my takeaways was Sam's advice to jot things down, especially moments of pure happiness. 
as it's easy to forget how happy you can feel when times are perhaps a little rougher. It's also important to acknowledge we can't be in a constant state of happiness. We need to accept every emotion. But when you do have a moment of happiness, take the time to note it down, either in a journal or follow Sam's advice and add it to your phone's note app. It's a really simple but effective reflection exercise. Another takeaway from our chat was Sam's point about how we are not our thoughts. We can often get caught up in every thought we have, especially in moments of stress. But by acknowledging that we are not our thoughts, we can take the opportunity to step back, recalculate and choose how we want to respond. Try these strategies out over the coming weeks to see if it helps you rethink how you see and understand moments of stress. And if you're interested in learning more about stress and resilience, I highly recommend you read Sam's book, Stressilient. It's the perfect handbook to help you build your own resilience and prepare for stressful situations. Thank you so much for listening to the Mindset Matters podcast today. And if resilience and stress are topics that you're interested in, check out my course on the Mindset Matters hub. Thank you.